scripture today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the, on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of God. Christmas is met with great anticipation. It, it just is. And Eracross touches on that. It's the advent. It's anticipating the arrival of Jesus. And so E-R-O-C-R-A-S, Emmanuel, uh, R for Regent King, O, Orient's Day Spring C uh, for Clovis, Key of David, uh, R for Root of Jesse, uh, A last week for Adonai, and this morning Sapienta, which is the word for wisdom. And if there's ever been a time in our world we need wisdom today, the title of, of the sermon is, What if Jesus ran for president? And I don't follow politics super close, but uh, every election cycle I watch and, and engage, I remember being up all night because of hanging chads years ago. Uh, I, um, I, I've never seen a race quite like this one. Uh, that's so much about style and not a lot about substance. It seems uh, political correctness instead of political expediency, anger maybe instead of answers. Uh, there's a lot that's swirling around. Uh, so, so what if um, uh, Jesus ran for president? Politics, in case you're wondering, are not a new phenomenon. Uh, they aren't. Uh, in Isaiah's day, when he writes chapter 11, countries are being pitted against one another. Peoples are being pitted against one another. And so here we discover Isaiah speaking into that, and he puts forth a candidate, if you will. He says, here's someone who's going to speak to it. But I would say to you, it would never work in our system today. Uh, because the way he introduces him is not um, very flattering. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
Um, if you look at this, this is horticultural uh, terminology. Adrian touched on this a couple weeks ago. We're going to deal with the wisdom part today. I'm just going to kind of uh, uh, breeze over the stump and the shoot and the branch and the, the fruit, uh, those four terms there. But uh, if there is a stump, it implies something has been cut down. And, and so you never go show that off. If you're, if be, Better Homes and Gardens is coming over, you don't go to the uh, bush you cut down and say, hey, check it out, take a picture of this. If a shoot comes out of it, it never comes out of the top. It always comes out of the side. And the only way it's going to grow is to bend and grow upward to the light. It, it is just unattractive. It is unappealing. No one would ever say, check this out. And Isaiah says, into the craziness of his world, I want you to see a stump, a, a shoot that will grow into a branch that will bear fruit. And everybody in their right mind would go, are you serious? Really? There's nothing exciting about that. Nothing but if you read the prior chapter, everything has been mowed down. Israel is decimated. All that is left are stumps. And so there needs to be something. And out of these stumps, Jesse, the father of David, out of this line of David comes a branch, a, a, a shoot that grows into a branch that bears fruit. It, it just isn't appealing. Chuck Swindoll writes um, very uh, well. Uh, he says, in 1809, the evening news broadcasts would have concentrated on Austria, not Britain or America. The attention of the entire world was on Napoleon as he swept across helpless hamlets like a fire across a Kansas wheat field. Nothing else was half as significant on the international scene the broad brush strokes on the historian's canvas give singular emphasis to the bloody scenes of tyranny created by the diminutive dictator of France. From Trafalgar to Waterloo, his name was a synonym for superiority. During that time of invasions and battles, babies were being born in Britain and America. But who was interested in babies and bottles, cradles and cribs, while history was being made? What could possibly be more important in 1809 than all of Austria? Who cared about English-born infants that year when Europe was in the limelight? And he says, someone should have. A veritable host of thinkers and statesmen drew their first breath in 1809. William Gladstone was born in Liverpool. Alfred Tennyson began his life in Lincolnshire. Oliver Wendell Holmes cried out in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Edgar Allan Poe, a few miles away in Boston, started his brief and tragic life. A physician named Darwin and his wife called their infant son Charles Robert. In a rugged cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky, owned by an illiterate wandering laborer, was filled with the infant screams of a newborn baby boy named Abraham Lincoln. 
Only a handful of history buffs today, he says, could name even one Austrian campaign. But who can measure the impact of those other lives? What appeared to be super significant to the world has proven to be no more exciting than a Sunday afternoon yawn. What seemed to be totally insignificant was, in fact, the genesis of an error. Isaiah's announcement of a shoot growing out of a stump seemed rather insignificant in his day, but the uh, ripples of that shoot growing out of that stump are still felt today. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 53, verses 1 and 2, he elaborates on that when he says, who has believed what he has heard from us? I would ask you that question this morning. Do you believe that this stump that gave forth a shoot and that shoot who ultimately came to be called Jesus is the real deal? Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I would ask you that question this morning. Has the arm of the Lord been revealed to you or do you dismiss him? Do you disregard him and say, no, uh, Jesus isn't for me. I do not believe him to be who he says he is. Here it is. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I would simply say to you this morning, if you've walked into this place expecting us to preach a Christ of prosperity, uh, that isn't what Isaiah preached. If you've come looking this morning for glamour and glitz, you will not find him in the Christ Isaiah puts forth here. But if it is wisdom for the answers of life, he offers that. If it is understanding for the difficulties that you are right now facing, he's full of it. If you have come this morning and your questions loom larger than your answers, I would say to you uh, from one who was a skeptic as a college kid, he answered my questions. He came to the doubts that I had and addressed them with great certainty. That I walked out of uncertainty into the certainty of a good, good father who loves me more than I could ever imagine. And there is a host of people who in this room could join me with a hearty amen. Amen? Amen. He's done that. He has answered those questions. Is he attractive? Not very. Is there any beauty that you should look at him? No. He is a, uh, a shoot growing out of a stump, if you will. Not your typical Messiah candidate at all. I don't put him forth as that. I don't put him forth as the latest and the greatest. He's the ancient of days, born of a baby, grew up, died on a cross, resurrected three days later. He's counterintuitive. He is countercultural. He is the wise Messiah. So if Jesus ran for president, here's how I put him forth if I were his campaign manager. I go to Isaiah 11, and we talk about his qualifications. Number one, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
that's what I'd say first. Why? Because it's what Isaiah says. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In the Old Testament, that's a code phrase for meaning this, that within him, if anything is going to be done, it will be be because the spirit, if it's a prophet, or in this case, the Messiah, his capacity will be determined by God putting his hand on him. That's, That's how you'll know. Some of you are into Star Wars. It's the force, right? In Star Wars. And, and if you have the force, you've got it. And if you don't, you don't. Uh, if you have the spirit resting on you, then you're qualified. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Did Jesus believe that? Luke 4, 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says. He believed that. He believed he was a man on a mission. He believed that there was something uh, that he had to do. And it would only happen if the Spirit rested on him. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, uh, captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus said, said, here I am, and the reason I'm here is because God has put his spirit on me. Uh, We see that in the baptism, don't we? He goes down, and John uh, uh, the Baptist is baptizing, per his name. He is baptizing, and Jesus steps into the crowd of sinners. John is calling them out. They're awful sinners. And he steps into the crowd of these awful sinners. This Messiah, this eternally existent God, steps into the middle of, of, of sin. And he says, John, I, I have to be baptized by you. And John the Baptist says, me? Baptize you? I'm not worthy to stoop over and just untie your shoes. How in the world can I baptize you? And uh, Jesus says, John, baptize me. And when he does, you see the Trinity. By the way, ever want to make an argument for it, there's a great spot. Because you see the Son As he comes up out of the water, the spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. The father from heaven says, hey, all right, this is McDowell County way of saying it. That's my boy. That's my boy. That's my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The spirit rested on him. Yeah. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. Uh, Jesus sensed that. His qualification is that he is overcome by, overpowered by the Holy Spirit. He acts out of the Spirit's working through him as he is fully man and fully God. Now, for those who come to Christ, we get that same Spirit. Wow. The same spirit that came on Christ comes in us. And he works in us to do his work and to do his bidding. 
Spurgeon that I prayed from earlier is, is known to say as he walked into that pulpit in London, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Any singing that is done, it's the Spirit. Any preaching that is done, it is the Spirit. There are those times that you may have experienced where that is more than at other times. I remember this. I think uh, having the piano playing it so much has brought this back to my memory. Uh, But I grew up with a piano in my house. And uh, it was the cast off. I lived in the parsonage. So it was what they didn't need in the church. None of us played it was storage, right, in our living room. So there it sat. No one played it. Uh, one day in the sixth grade, I sat down and didn't know anything, but with three fingers began to play. These three middle fingers, everybody who's taken piano knows you can't play the piano with your three middle fingers. You spread your hand out, and it's this, this, and this. So I remember picking out notes and trying to see how they all fit together. I was a sixth grader. And uh, so I decided after I could pick out a few tunes, maybe I should take piano lessons. So I did. So I go and I take piano lessons for a year. I'm a nerd. I'm a great student. Typically, I was a horrible piano student. Teacher hated to see me coming because I couldn't get it. I struggled. I would have to repeat lessons. She would shake her head at me, right? And she would say, you're probably playing by ear. You're not focusing. But I really sat down and practiced and tried just wouldn't come. So after a year, I quit. She was glad. I was glad. We were all glad. I was out of her hair in her living room, right? And so I I continued to play, continued to enjoy playing. And our choir was uh, just an old-fashioned gospel choir. And I remember one night, I was probably in the ninth grade, and our choir traveled to sing somewhere. I went, Diane, who was our pianist, wasn't there. And I remember them looking at me, and they said, you need to play. Well, okay. And uh, I said, what are you singing? We came from that tradition where they decided that on the fly. You didn't practice. The guy stood up and said, we're going to sing so-and-so. And that's what we sang. Three-part harmony, pretty decent harmony. So I remember sitting at that piano. I remember how it was sitting. It was kind of weird the way it sat on that stage that night. I sat down to play. I don't think I'll ever forget this. I sat down to play, and I'm playing just whatever they're singing, right? Songs I'd never played in my life. I had to. I'm put on the spot. I'm playing. When all of a sudden, I lie you not, you may find this spooky. Uh, It's not usual, but all of a sudden, I'm playing, and my hands do things they have never done in my life. And I remember as a ninth grader looking down at my hands going, what is happening? And something happened to me that night playing in that worship service that never left me. From that moment, I could do things on a piano I'd never been able before to do. The Holy Spirit, period. I can take no credit for my ability to play the piano. I'm reminded of that every time I sit down to play. The Holy Spirit. Jesus says in his inaugural address, the Holy Spirit is upon me. He's deflecting. All the candidates would do that today, right? He's deflecting. The Holy Spirit is upon me. What will happen? 
Um, the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. It doesn't make a lot of sense to think that the Messiah would fear his father. But as Spurgeon said in his prayer, when you come to Christ, you realize he's a good, good father. And you don't fear him in the sense of to be uh, uh, terrified of him. You fear him in the sense of awe and respect. His qualifications, the Spirit shall rest upon him. Let's talk about his job performance uh, for a little bit. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Um, Absolute justice demands absolute knowledge. The only way anybody can be 100% just is to know everything, right? That's the only way. Have you ever had one of those teachers who when one person in the classroom messed up, the whole class had to suffer? I hated that as a kid. Why? Because I was a nerd. I did my part. You know, I would always think, you thug. You know, look what you're doing to the rest of us. Why would a teacher ever do that? She or he does not possess absolute knowledge. And if you don't have absolute knowledge, you can't be absolutely just. If Jesus does not decide by what he sees, it means he sees deeper and beyond the human eye. He searches our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows the gift you gave a couple of days ago Only because the other person was giving you one and you begrudged it the whole time. Right? You're like, oh, I have to buy for them again. And they were probably thinking the same thing. And so you exchange those gifts with a smile on your face. Uh, The other person may not know that. He does. He will decide with equity, with fairness. For the meek of the earth... uh, We've now touched on this twice, so we can't skip over it. Uh, A king in Isaiah's day, if he was good with the poor, could by default be good with the rich. That's important. If he could hang with the poor, if he never lost his ability to identify with the least of these, then he would be able to deal with the most of these. Could I say something to you, church, on the eve of 2016 that holds true for church today? If we lose our ability to walk with the poor, we will lose our ability to love everybody else. In this room are people who never worry ever about money. It never enters your mind. You don't have to. You've worked hard. God has blessed you. It never enters your mind. You have plenty. You never worry about food on your table. You never. I was on call this weekend Christmas morning, my phone rings straight from the church. I know that's an on-call call. I answer it. It's a homeless couple. 
The lady is frantic on the other end. She says, we've called every church in the county. Nobody is there. Well, duh. You know? It's Christmas. We have families too. You know? I didn't say that. I just thought it in the moment. And I said, what can I do for you? And she shared her plight with me. I said, Trent, let's go. And so he loads up and we go. And you as a church took care of them. You're giving this morning. Took care of this homeless couple in their plight, removed from their home because of septic issues and struggling to get back in because their landlord doesn't yet have it repaired after a month. And they may do until Christmas morning. We must never, please hear me, lose the ability. They're planning to be at the next service this morning. We must never lose the ability and the capacity to walk with the poor. Amen? We can't lose that. If they ever feel unaccepted here, we're done as a church. It's over. Why? We're in a poor county with significant need. Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you. You always will. We will always love them in this place. And some of you are sitting here this morning, and you sit here in the comfort of where you live because people all around you give. Uh, Jesus how did he do this? He, he's at a worship service of all places. Uh, the story is recorded in Mark 12. And he sat down opposite the treasury. All right, so he's watching the people give. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, many rich people put in large sums. Jesus never decries that, by the way. This is not a socialistic, anti-rich Jesus, as some make him out to be. It isn't that. If you're here and you're rich, praise the Lord. If you're here and you're wealthy, God has blessed you. Praise the Lord. There's nothing wrong, nothing sinful about it. You should never feel guilty for how God has blessed you. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. And she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. He noticed a poor widow. He followed through with his ability to love the poor. I'm my favorite uh, a miracle in all of the New Testament is that widow going into the town of Nain with her only hope, her only son lying on that casket. And as soon, uh, at his death, she became a ward of the state, which did not have the best welfare system. It had become now uh, what had been instituted in Deuteronomy. It had become tied up in Pharisaical legalism. And so she would struggle. And Jesus walked into there and broke every rule in the book and touched a dead corpse and raised her only hope back to life. 
he loved poor people. But he was righteous and fair about it. How do we know? Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. Why is that significant? Similar to us, but even more. Uh, He wore layered garments in those days, and there was one piece that connected all of it, and that was the belt. All right, so it's the centerpiece of the garment. Uh, Not uh, attractive, it's not that. It, It was functional. And what does that mean? Integrity is what it means. He, he will be a man of integrity. He'll be, he'll be righteous, meaning he'll do the right thing every time. And faithfulness, he'll be there for you every time. And we can attest to that. Amen? Amen. He does the right thing every time. And he's always there for you every single time. Righteousness and faithfulness shall be the belt. So how would he do his job? What would his performance look like? He'd love poor people and he would do it with such equity and fairness. So as not to disdain the rich uh, and not to discredit the rich and and not to uh, uh, demean the poor. He would do it with total righteousness and total faithfulness. And then let's look at his government. Uh, Margaret struggled to read this without tears. It's a moving passage. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. I want to extract the word dwell because it's the word that's pretty huge here. Uh, The word dwell means to live with and rely on. All right, it doesn't just mean to hang out with. It means to live with and rely on. All right, what does that mean? Um, Wendy and I have had more than one exchange student live with us. Several of you have had exchange students. Some of you do today. Uh, When you have an exchange student, they dwell with you, don't they? They live with you and they rely on you. They, They can't drive. All right, they're not allowed to drive. So that means if they get from point A to point B, you're going to have to take them. Uh, They don't have a driver's license. They're from another country. Uh, On Wednesday morning, Hannah, or Wednesday afternoon, Hannah and Wendy drove to Greenville Airport and picked up Icy. Many of you remember her from Senegal, Africa. She'll be at the next service. Icy lived with us for almost a year. Um, She dwelt with us. She completely relied on us. We got her from point A to point B. When they went to pick her up, uh, we've just so enjoyed her company over Christmas. It has been so good to have her with us. And uh, she's like a sister to Hannah. Uh, They had twin beds in Hannah's bedroom. And every night, Icy sang Hannah to sleep. She just came in and became one of us for that period of time. The wolf will rely on the lamb. That's the point. Wow. Not just go lie down with, but if the lamb didn't take care of the wolf, the wolf would not survive. That's what many call in the Gospels, especially in Luke, the great reversal in Jesus' kingdom. Not what any of you might expect at all. It's why 
everything's level. It's why grace is grace. It's, it's why there are no big eyes and little use. It, it, it's why uh, no one in this room can brag on anything we've done for him. It's all for him and to him and about him and because of him. It's all for his glory and to his glory and from his power. Amen? This is the picture of the kingdom. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion. It's all of these polar opposites that will be together. And then there's this picture that is frightening. It it is a frightening picture. The nursing child and the cobra. Everything in you says, go grab that kid, right? Everything in you, when you read this nursing child playing over the den of the cobra, everything in you says, go grab that child. But no, this is the kingdom. And in Jesus' kingdom, there is no fear of sudden death. Oh, I long for that, amen? We're not there yet, folks. We're not there yet. But in his kingdom, there is no fear of sudden death. There is no fear that in the middle of the night, some tragic uh, thing could unfold. And as it unfolded, you would wake up to a brand new reality the next day. No, there's perpetual day. And, And in his presence, there is no night, for he will be the light of that city. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. That's the new reality. This is the kingdom of Jesus. This is what he is after. The great reversal, the great undoing of everything Satan has wrongly done, he will undo. He will make all things new. All things. This king. 1 Corinthians 15.55, Paul, in this exuberance at the end of that letter to the church at Corinth, says, Oh, death, he calls out, Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is gone. He's quoting, incidentally, Isaiah in that. Why? Because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Could I say something to you with all due respect? And I want you to hear me on this. I want you to hear me. And this is why. I realize sprinkled around this room are people who are here today because you're visiting family and you don't know the Lord. And maybe you're even anti the Lord. Would you please hear me? Please hear me. With as much respect as I can say to you, If you will ever get to know him, you will discover that he is everything and more that you could ever imagine. He is. And I say that as someone who struggled intellectually with him for years. who argued against his veracity in this world, who thought that intellectually you could figure this life out. 
could I say to you this morning that he is enough? That the more you know him, the more you love him? And the more you love him, the more you want to get to know him? And the more you know him, the more you love him. And and that, at the first, like Isaiah said, he's not very appealing. And that he calls for total life change. I think profound in this is Hosea. Old Testament prophet, God told to do a radical thing to demonstrate his love for his people Israel. And God said, go and marry a prostitute. Hosea did. Gomer was her name. They had children together and she left him. She didn't leave him for another man. She left him for other men. Plural. And God spoke to Hosea and he said, go buy her back. In my mind's eye, I see this prophet, tongues wagging. Oh, that's, that's the preacher whose wife left him. That, that's, that's, that's Hosea. Yeah, she's been working the streets. God said, Hosea, go get her. And I picture this heartbroken, weary prophet walk into the street to this public place where prostitutes came and their pimps took them and they put them up and sold them. And Hosea stood there and watched lustfully eyed men bid on his wife. And he stepped into that And when they said 50, he said 100. And I wonder what she thought when she heard his voice. And when they said 150, he said two. And I wonder what she felt. when he bid publicly on his own wife. That's chapter 3 of Hosea. Chapter 4 says, Now, Israel, if you only knew me, you don't know me. If you only knew me, what, what is God saying? I'm standing in the crowd. You're, you're standing there and you've prostituted yourself to so many gods. Our praise team can come. You've prostituted yourself to so many gods. 
You've worshipped so many things besides me. And they're all bidding on you right now. And they're all calling out for you right now. And they're all saying, hey, I'll give 50 and I'll give 100. Can you hear my voice? Can you hear me in the crowd? I'm bidding on you. I'm bidding on you. If you only knew me, I'm that kind of God. Am I humiliated? Guess he was. Just look at the cross. Am I embarrassed? Yes. Am I heartbroken? Oh, you better believe he was. Can anybody ever outbid him for your life? Not at all. No one's ever paid that kind of price. So we're going to sing. If you want to trust him today as your Savior, come. If you've wandered off the path, get back on. Let's sing this song about him and to him. God's leading you to make any decision. I'll be here. Adrian will be here. You respond as he leads you this morning.